All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here. Um, it's great to have you with us this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Psalms. And so let me invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to Psalm uh, 137. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can find a blue Bible near you at the end of the rows of chairs. And uh, Psalm 137, if you're looking at one of those blue Bibles, is on, is on page 521. Our, our theme in the Psalms this summer is the songs of summer, learning to sing no matter what life throws at you. And uh, several years ago, I, um, in my just kind of daily Bible reading practice, I did a thing where I, I read through the entire book of Psalms every month. Now there's 150 Psalms, so that means you read about five Psalms a day. And uh, one of the things that I took away from that time of reading through five, you know, the book of Psalms maybe three or four times um, in a really short period of time was how many of the Psalms really um, give voice to the negative uh, emotions in life? Um, you know, if you've been a Christian, you've been in a church for any length of time, we often think of the Psalms as the place to go to to find kind of like inspirational thoughts, beautiful words. And of course that's there, but when you read through beginning to end the book of Psalms, one of the things that strikes you is that the vast majority of them are, are coming from a place of saying, God, what in the world are you doing? Um, God, how in the world am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to believe in you when this is going on in my life? And so um, this summer, as we're looking at several, a handful of Psalms, I've tried to um, pick some that might be, um, uh, you know, it might give voice to emotions that we don't know what to do with as Christians in the 21st century. And this morning we're looking at what um, the Bible has to say about our anger. Our anger, right? Hardly a minute, hardly an hour, hard, never a day goes by without at least an opportunity for anger. You know, every time you get in the car there is ample opportunity for anger, right? Isn't it amazing how some drivers drive way too slow? Um, and there's other drivers that drive way too fast. And there's very few people that drive just exactly the perfect speed, which is the speed that I am choosing to drive at any given moment. And I can get so angry at those slow drivers. Don't they know I'm in a hurry? But also those crazy people that put my family at risk. Why can't we all drive the perfect speed like me, right? Um, yesterday, we went to Ikea, and um, as with any trip to Ikea, we ended up coming home with way more than we thought we would, spending more money than we thought we would. Uh, we actually had to call uh, my in-laws to get a second car there to get everything home, and uh, so we spent the day putting together Ikea furniture, and I mean, talk about opportunities for anger, right? I like putting stuff together. I'm pretty decent at it, but see, you get to the end of it, and it's like, there's one screw missing. What in, oh my gosh, it makes me so angry, right? Um, there's all kinds of opportunities to be angry. The service at a restaurant can make us angry. Our kids can make us angry. Our spouses can make us angry. Uh, there are angry people everywhere. Everywhere you go, there are people that are angry. Have you been to an airport lately? 
Everybody is angry at the airport, right? You're angry in line, you're angry checking in, you're angry when your flight's delayed, you're angry when you didn't get an upgrade. Everybody's angry. A couple of years ago, I was flying just through New York. Uh, I think it was uh, Newark um, Airport. And I had to go, I, I was coming in from out of the country, I had to go through security. And so I had to you know, go through security again. And you know, the, the indignity of TSA, right? And they're empty all of your stuff into the little tray and I just, empty my pockets and I throw it in the tray and uh, the TSA guy reaches into the tray and he pulls out my chapstick and he goes, it's not metal, it stays in your pocket. I'm like, man, New Yorkers, right? Like, why are they so angry? So much anger over my chapstick. We turn on the news. Right, I mean, people are angry on TV. On the, any news, everybody is angry, right? Um, you open up your computer, there are even, you're not gonna believe this, there are even angry people on the internet. Can you believe it? I, um, I was in a sports pub this week. I'm not a big sports guy, but uh, you know you're in a real manly place when you go to the restroom and they put the sports page, you know, up on the wall in the, in the men's room, and I saw this picture of, uh, there's this, boxing match uh, coming up. I don't, know, some, I don't follow this, but <laughs> Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor. Is anybody aware? And like the picture of, I think they ran into each other at a Lakers game. And it was like, the, I, 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 it has to be for show. I mean, they were so angry. Why are, why are people, it's a sport, right? Why are people so angry playing sports? Um, I know they're fighting, but come on. It's easy to look at the world and wonder why in the world is everybody so angry? And we can look at the world and say, why is everybody so angry and miss the real problem spot with anger, which is in our own hearts, right? If I'm going to talk to you about anger for the next few minutes, I have to start by confessing that anger is my sin, uh, the one that is always with me, the one that um, all my life I have been an angry person. Um, at every moment in my life, it feels like even in moments of joy and happiness, anger is like a millimeter below the surface. I can get angry so quickly. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I have thought that I have, um, you know, in a moment I've said something, I thought, you know, I did a pretty good job of, of masking my anger there only to get in the car and you know, talk to my wife and learn that I was, I didn't hide my anger at all, actually. Um, maybe for myself, but everybody else saw it. What are we going to do with our anger? What are we going to do with our anger? Well, I want to invite you to look with me at Psalm 137. Um, and I'm going to warn you before we read this, that there are some hard words uh, in Psalm 137, but there's also hope. And maybe you're like me, and maybe you're an angry person, and Anger is the thing that you wish you could just, I just wish I could forget things. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to be so angry all the time. Well, Psalm 137 has hope for angry people. So would you stand with me as we give our attention to God's word this morning? Psalm 137 says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof, roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you give us ears to hear your word to us this morning? Lord, we are angry people, and we don't think we should be angry, and we don't know what to do with our anger, and sometimes we run from it, and sometimes we stuff it, but we can never really get away from it. God, would you quiet our angry hearts this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, um, that's probably not what you expected to hear. Uh, actually, I was scheduled to preach on this psalm last week uh, when we were doing the infant baptism, and I decided, you know, let's maybe not, let's save that for, let's, let's maybe not do that on the same week. What in the world are those words doing in the Bible, right? Um, it's not what we expect to find in the Psalms. You know, um, I think what, what we have to see when we come to the Psalms is this, that uh, we, we think as, as modern people, we have this tendency, this kind of pride that says, you know, uh, as modern people, we're not afraid of our feelings, right? We know how to express ourselves. We're not like religious people. We're not like traditional people. We're not like pr tr um, kind of primitive people who just, you know, they stuffed their feelings. They didn't let it all out, right? Except when it comes to anger, <laughs> right? We are afraid of our anger. Um, and there's a way to approach spirituality. There's a way to approach Christianity as if life is always happy. But what do we do when life isn't happy? And what do we do when, when, um, when we're angry? Uh, we're not always happy. So what do we do with our anger? Well, Psalm uh, 137 shows us there's two things that I want you to see in this psalm um, about anger. And the first thing that we have got to talk about is what is the thing that actually makes us angry? Why are we so angry? You know, uh, Psalm 137 is describing a historical event. Well, it's written in, in, in kind of in response to a historical event. In 586 BC, the nation of Babylon, um, they sieged Jerusalem, the capital of, of Israel, um, and eventually the, Jerusalem fell. And uh, the Babylonian Empire, the soldiers rushed into Jerusalem, and uh, they, they just pillaged the city, um, they laid it bare, they, uh, they plundered the temple of God and took the kind of precious uh, vessels from the temple of God back to, uh, back to Babylon. Uh, they raped and they pillaged. And, um, you know, historical records outside of the Bible even bear witness to this, that most cruelly of all, they, they would, you know, see a, a mother with her children in her arms and the soldiers ripped the babies out of their arms and 
you can fill in the details that are preserved here for us in Psalm 137. Just utterly, utterly cruel. And the survivors, those who didn't die in the siege or in the, um, in the, uh, in the destruction of the city itself, were uh, kind of carted up and they were hauled back to, uh, to Babylon. They were taken away almost as slaves to live in exile in Babylon. And this psalm is an eyewitness account written by a survivor of the siege of Jerusalem who's now been taken forcibly against his will back to Babylon. And there they work, they're, they're, they're enslaved, you know, they're oppressed people. And there the Babylonians mock these captives. And they say to us, oh, uh, you know, they, they would say, you know, oh, you who, um, you know, your God who's so great, sing us one of those songs about how great your God is. You know, you who think Jerusalem is where God makes his presence known on earth, sing us one of those songs about how beautiful Jerusalem is. You know, while you're here under a hard labor building our capital city and yours lies in ruin. Um, they mocked, they jeered, um, they made fun of. And what the psalmist does is um, he doesn't give in. He doesn't say, well, we're captured, we're conquered. I mean, we might as well make things as easy on ourselves as we can. Let's just play along. Let's just sing along, okay? Let's just do it. No, he says, how can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? He refuses to sing. He chooses to remain angry. His own anger, uh, he owns his anger and protests by refusing to sing. And we don't see what he gets in response, but what he's doing is saying, I'm going to remain angry about the injustice that has been done. I'm going to choose to remain angry about the injustice that has been done. And what this shows us here is where anger comes from. Anger always flows out of love. Um, anger always stems from love. Um, you never get angry about something you don't care about. If my children are being threatened, it makes me angry. Uh, Friday night, our family went down to the beach in San Clemente. We were going to have a picnic dinner at the beach, and we're sitting there. My kids are on the beach blanket, and they've got their food, and this other family walks up, and they've got a dog with them off the leash, which is illegal, by the way, people. And their dog runs up, and he runs right over to my kids eating their food, and he's got his like slobbery mouth all over my kids' dinner. And I was so angry. I sort of, no, I didn't hide it at all, actually. <laughs> if the same thing had happened to like another family, I could have been sitting there and the dog chose another family, and I just saw it happen, I would think, oh, that's a bummer for them. Right? It wouldn't make me angry, because that's not my family. Uh, the ones that I love are not being threatened. Um, I am angry when something that I love, when my children are threatened, when something that I love is threatened. Anger always flows out of love. If, um, if my family is threatened, if something that I love threatens them, it makes me angry. Okay, so let me ask you, what do you think about what I just said? That if that same thing happened to somebody else, it wouldn't have made me angry. Um, I mean, it's kind of reflective of a like, character flaw in me, right? Um, see, I think we could make a compelling case that there's actually not enough anger in the world that we live in. Um, you know, it's easy to look at our world, turn on the TV, oh my gosh, everybody's so angry, why is our world so angry? I think there's not actually enough anger in the world. Uh, because when we see injustice, when we see oppression, um, 
you know, it makes us angry for like 90 seconds until we try, you know, until the, you know, the next story comes on. When we hear on the news a story, I mean, we see this almost every week, another bombing, you know, school children targeted, uh, nurses targeted, um, natural disaster threatening family, uh, threatening thousands of lives, you know, famine, capital, uh, cities being besieged, war ravaging, people without enough food, without clean water. It affects us for like that long and then we're done. You know, the commercial comes on, we change to the next page, on a bro- whatever it is, and we're just done with it. It should make us angry. It should make us angry. We are not angry enough about evil and injustice in our world. I mean, are we angry? Are we angry about the fact that right now there are more African-American men in prison in our country than were enslaved in 1850? That should make us angry. Are we angry that 40% of children in America are born to single mothers? Yeah, that's not a statement about single mothers. That's, I mean, that's 40% of children born into a de facto broken home and all that that brings with it. Our anger shows a lack of love. Our anger shows, a, our lack of anger shows a lack of love. You know, people today, we look at the Bible. Uh, I hear this all the time. People look at the Bible and say, why is God so angry? God is so angry because he loves us. God looks at a, at a world filled with men and women and children created in his image that are hurting themselves and hurting each other. And they yawn at his glory. And it makes him angry. When we destroy our lives, it makes God angry. When God offers us hope and peace and reconciliation with him, and we're just distracted with like entertainments, things that just don't stinking matter, it makes God angry. The Bible says, Jason quoted this earlier, the Bible says that God is slow to anger. God's anger is different than ours, that he is slow to anger. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't have a quick fuse. God isn't ready to be angry immediately. He is slow to anger, but his anger is righteous and good. When he sees men, women, and children whom he loves threatened it makes him angry God isn't angry despite his love God is angry because he loves I mean any not, I know not everybody in the room is a parent I mean you understand this instinctively even if you're not a parent if you're a parent and your daughter is threatened it makes you angry and any father any mother whose daughter is threatened and they respond with indifference. That person, you understand the point, right? There's a problem there. It is right to be angry when those whom we love, those who are vulnerable, are threatened, are victimized. Not all anger is sin. The question that we should ask is not, why are you so angry? The question that we should ask is, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? 
If we love the things that God loves, then we'll be angry at the things that make God angry. Are we angry at the things that make God angry? Um, are we angry when we see people just ignoring the grace of God? I mean, to say that we're angry doesn't mean we like go and yell at them, right? It should move us to compassion, but does it make us angry? Does it make us angry when we see, you know, in the news stories of God's people, the church, being, you know, those who should be leading and protecting the vulnerable in our churches. And we see these stories that they're the, the, the ones who should be the protectors are the victimizers. Right? Does that make us angry when we hear stories about clergy abusing children? It should make us angry. Are we angry when people just hear that there is a God who is glorious and they're like, whatever. This is going to be done soon. I'm getting this lunch. Is it lunchtime yet? That makes me really angry. <laughs> but you know what makes me angry so much? I mean, I said, like, every time I get in the car, I'm angry. When there's somebody in the carpool lane going like two miles below the speed limit, it's like, does this person not understand what the carpool lane's for? Why are you in the carpool lane if you're just going to drive the speed limit? Makes me so angry. I get angry when I come home at the end of a long day and it's been tired and we're getting ready for dinner and I'm, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to like pour myself a beverage while we prepare dinner and I'm halfway through the preparation and we're out of limes. Makes me so stinking angry. Why don't we have limes? Should be limes all the time at our house. Makes me angry, but mostly the things that make me angry show that who I really love is me. I'm angry at the things that I don't like. When I'm frustrated because I want something. What about you? What makes you angry? The things that make us angry show us what we really love. We are uncomfortable with anger. And some of us want to say, well, we shouldn't be so angry. Let's just not get so angry. Okay, let's just talk. Let's think about what's going on. You know, it all depends on your perspective. Um, you know, religious people kind of look at anger and we tend to say something like, you know, uh, God wants us to be nice. Nice people don't get angry. So just, if you're angry, just stuff it, right? Um... Anger always stems from love. Um, if you don't ang- if you if you never get angry, it means you don't love. Okay, I think I've made that clear. <laughs> um, so, what should we do with our anger? Well, the second thing that I want you to see in, in Psalm one thirty seven is that the psalmist prays his anger. His anger drives him to God. In the first part of the psalm, verses one through six, he laments. Lament is not. We don't even know what that word means. It's the problem with our anger is when we, when we just dwell, with our, dwell in our anger and say, and now I'm going to act out of my anger. And biblical lament is taking our anger to God and saying, God, I'm so angry and I know that you are too. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something about this. And so in the first part of the psalm, he, he laments about the injustice of what's happened to God's people. And he owns his own anger. But then in verse 7, he turns to God and he prays. And it's hard to see this because the words are so startling and so jarring to us. 
Um, but, but look at what he says. He's not saying, you know, um, I'm getting angry. I've got to find my happy place. No, 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 no. You know, I can't. Like, I'm going to go do some yoga so I'm not so angry anymore. Nothing wrong with yoga, necessarily. But, um, you know, he's not just denying that, that uh, I'm just going to sh- keep it at arm's length, right? Nor is he saying, we will avenge. I mean, think about this. Traditional cultures, how do you respond to... Your uh, city has been sacked. Your people have been oppressed. Your children have been murdered brutally. How do traditional people tend to respond to this? You know, he doesn't say, you know, I will the, my, you know, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not avenge what has been done. Right? That's what we might think he would say. Um, when your enemy has crueled, uh, taunt, has been cruel to you, has taunted you, has mocked you, when they've dashed your little ones on the rocks, how do you respond? He doesn't respond by swearing to avenge. He doesn't say, by the waters of Babylon, we refuse to sing, but we swore I will repay them tenfold. He doesn't stifle his anger, but he doesn't spew his anger either. He prays his anger. He takes his anger to God. He says, God, I am so angry. I'm so angry. And I'm laying my anger before you. He's opening his feelings up to God. And saying, God, in all of my reality, I open myself up to you and all of your reality. His anger drives him to God. And the presence of God changes his anger. That's what the Bible tells us to do. It doesn't say, if you're angry, don't come to God. It says... If you're angry, run to God. Run to God. Now, where do you see that in this passage? You might wonder, well, what you have to see is what is actually being said. In the, I mean, that last verse is so startling that we might not even want to look and see what it says. Is he saying, God, I'm going to do to their little ones what they did to mine? No, he's not saying that. Is he saying, God, give me strength. You know, God, help me do to them what they did to us. No, he's not saying that. In verse 7, he says, Lord, you remember. God, you remember what they did. As awful as this sounds, what he's doing here is making an appeal to God's justice. I mean, what does a prosecutor do in a courtroom? A prosecutor lays out the case and suggests a sentence. And then the judge decides the verdict. He leaves it to the judge to, to decide, and that's exactly what's happening here. He takes his white-hot anger to God and says to God, I want them to receive exactly what they did to us, but not my will be done but yours. He's suggesting a sentence, and he's saying to the ultimate judge, you decide. God, you decide. You see what that means about our anger? It means that we must be angry because... We love. We have to. God is angry because He loves. But it means that we um, we further we must bring our anger into the presence of God. We cannot be trusted with our anger ourselves. But it remain it, it means that we must remind ourselves that God is a judge. That if we are rightly angry, that God is is also rightly angry about the same thing. Uh, bringing our anger to God protects us from an overreaction in our anger. You know, one of the things that is just so true is that our anger clouds our awareness. Like, we can't see ourselves when we are angry. You know, when that dog um, 
licked my kid's dinner. I mean, I literally had the thought, I have a pocket knife in my back pocket, right? I don't want justice. I want, oh, this will never happen again. I will show them. They will be so sorry. And bringing our anger, I didn't do anything like that, but, you know, just to be clear. That's what our anger does, and bringing our anger to God allows us to say, God, you are the one that I can trust to respond. I cannot trust myself with my anger. I lay my anger before you. Now you do something about it. God, you are the judge. You are the one person that has the power to judge. You are the only person who really sees things as they are. And so you are the only one who has the knowledge to judge. You are the only one who can be trusted to judge. You're the only one who has the right to judge. If I were the judge of the world, like if Bryce Hales was the judge of the world, the, the, the promise that we, like, think about, what does that make you think? Like if you were, not if I was the judge. You're pro- hopefully you're terrified that if I was the judge of the world, if I, at midnight tonight, I'm going to say, I will rule on all the anger cases in the world, the world would be far more cruel as a result, wouldn't it? If I were to judge the world, the world would be a far more cruel place. God is the one who can judge rightly. Now, does that mean that if we pray our anger, if we bring our anger to God, that we won't be angry anymore? Well, no, it doesn't. But it does mean that if we, when we bring our anger to God and we trust him to act, that we, can, we no longer have to obsess over it. It won't twist us and tweak us. And if it does, it means that we're not actually bringing our anger to him. Do you see so many people in the world look at the Bible and they say, if everybody believed in the God of the Bible, the, Bi- the world would be a terrible place because uh, it would validate everybody's anger and everybody would be acting out in self-righteous anger. But what Psalm 137 helps us see is this. It's only when we believe in a God who gets angry that we can stop taking revenge ourselves. It's only when we believe in a God who gets angry and acts righteously that we can stop being self-righteously angry. Miroslav Volf um, is, a, uh, is a Christian theologian. Um, he's Croatian. He lived in the, uh, in the Balkans and just witnessed horrible atrocities in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he teaches at Yale now. And um, he, he has a book writ- about forgiveness. He wrote a book about forgiveness, not like if I sat down after having lived a fairly uneventful, comfortable-ish life to write a theological treatise about forgiveness and be like, yawn, right? He went through horrendous, horrendous, you know, his uh, family members, friends, victimized, and he writes a book about forgiveness. What does it look like to forgive when you've been truly wronged? And he says this. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. You see what he's saying? He says, I have to believe in a God of vengeance in order to maintain my position of nonviolence. But that will be unpopular to many in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have, first, have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. 
the topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will inevitably die. And as one who watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other unpleasant, many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you understand what he's saying? The only way, you know, if you think getting cut off on the freeway is like suffering, <laughs> you haven't gotten out very much. He's saying if you have been truly wronged, the only, your only options are to seek vengeance yourself or believe that one day a just judge will respond perfectly. Those are the only options available to you. If you've actually lived through suffering and injustice, if people you know and love have been victimized, the only thing that will keep you from retaliating in your anger is the belief that there is a God who will right every single wrong. The only thing that will stop you from taking matters into your own hands is the, is the belief that there is a God who will take matters into his. Okay, so maybe this psalm isn't quite as bad as we first thought, right? But you have to see how the New Testament picks this psalm up. Uh, because uh, ask yourself this question. So what the psalmist says here at the end, was he wrong to say that? Uh, he, no, he was absolutely right to say what he said. And yet, I believe that for anybody in this room to say the same thing would be wrong. Why? In Luke 19, Jesus, um, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into, into Jerusalem, into the holy city. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and immediately his mind goes to Psalm 137. Um, Jesus is riding in, you know, on Palm Sunday, he, we call the triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey, and the crowds are praising him and hailing him, and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, the king, the, the, the Davidic king has come back, the king is back, and they're, yes, this is what we've been longing for, and yet Jesus knows that the crowds that are praising him are about to turn on him. And later that week, they, those crowds are going to crucify him. And his mind immediately goes to Psalm 137. And he says this. It says in, in Luke 19, And when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come when your enemies will surround you and hem you in on every side and they will tear you to the ground and they will dash your little ones and they will not leave one stone upon another. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 137? You know, the, the words at the end there, there's really two complaints. They, they dashed our little ones and they did not lay one, leave one stone on top of another. They laid the city to ruin. And that's immediately what Jesus says as he goes into Jerusalem. He's saying, these people are about to kill me. But as the Son of God, he, protect, he predicts what is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem, uh, which happens after Jesus' crucifixion. 
in history for us. In 70 AD, the Roman army uh, sacked the holy city of Jerusalem. And what Jesus is predicting here comes true. Jesus is talking to a city that's about to reject him and kill him. And he doesn't go in and say, hi, you can do whatever because I'm the son of God and I know I'm going to raise from the dead. And man, are you going to get it? No, he's weeping. He's saying, I wish you had known. I wish you would, I wish you would know. I wish you would have known what, what, what's about to happen. He mourns for them. He's not gloating. He's weeping for them. He's not angry. He's mourning. I wish you would have known. And on the cross, as they're killing him, Jesus doesn't get angry, but he has compassion on them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Forgive them. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I said at the beginning that, that God has to be concerned. If God is a God who is just, he has to be angry. Why isn't Jesus angry? Shouldn't Jesus be angry when these good things are threatened? And to understand why Jesus is angry, we have to see the answer in Psalm 137. The psalmist is saying, what about our little ones? You know, we've been taken captive and we're going to survive, but what about our little ones? Shouldn't something be done? Shouldn't there be justice for our little ones? Shouldn't somebody pay? And now we see the answer. That God says, yes. Yes. Somebody will have to pay. But I'm going to pay the price myself. Shouldn't somebody pay for our little ones? The Bible says, yes. And God says, my little one, my own son will be dashed. He was taken from my arms. He was crushed. He suffered unjustly. He was crucified. But God says, but I did it in love. I did it as the greatest act of love. I did it voluntarily. I did it willingly. And in doing so, he drains the poison from our anger. Justice must be done, God says, but I'll pay for it myself. You know, when you're angry... What is it that wells up in you? It's the sense that somebody has to pay for this. <laughs> somebody, and you know, it's true. Somebody does have to pay for it. You know, when somebody wrongs you, either the person who wrongs you will have to pay or you will have to find a way through the emotional torment that is forgiveness to pay yourself. You have to pay the cost. The cost has to be paid. But the cross shows us that ultimately God pays the price for all the evil and all the injustice in our world. Every threat to what you love has been paid for. The anger that wells up because something that is good and lovely and beautiful has been threatened is paid for by Jesus. If you're angry, you don't have to go looking for someone else's loved one because God's loved one, Jesus, has paid the price for your anger paid the price to absorb our anger. We have to be angry because we love. We have to bring our anger to God because he's the only one who can deal with it. And he's the one who absorbs the just anger that we rightly feel. Okay, so what do we actually do with that? Right, that sounds good theoretically, but what do we actually do with our anger? Well, um, what I want to suggest 
is that if your first impulse is to sit here thinking, man, I sure hope my spouse is listening to this. <laughs> um, I, got, I know somebody who really needs to, that's not the, let's, let, let's not start there, okay? I know an angry person who really needs to listen to this. Let's not start there. Um, the place to start is here, to ask God, show me what my anger looks like. God, show me what my anger looks like. I know that in my anger, I have no idea what I look like. But because of Jesus, we can actually endure seeing what our anger truly looks like. Um, I want to remind you, I said this a couple weeks ago, but we, have, uh, we want to give you a gift this summer as we, as we get this series in the Psalms. Uh, we have a book and a CD um, to give you as a gift. Uh, on your way out, you can stop at the uh, info table with a blue tablecloth, and there'll be somebody there that would love to get you a book or a CD. But what we want to do is to help you take this series in the book of Psalms into the rest of the week. This isn't just an hour on Sunday morning, but the Psalms are songs that we can sing throughout the week. And so there's a book that has a 365 readings in the Psalms. And every morning, every evening, you can open one up. And like I said, so many of the Psalms are about helping us deal with our anger, our depression, our anxiety. And we want to give that to you. And I encourage you to open it up and, and pray and say, God, how? show me what my anger looks like. Help me in the Psalms to deal with my anger. Um, this CD is a, song, a CD of song, um, like songs based on the Psalms written by Senator McCracken. And uh, put it in your car. Probably the only place you have a CD player anymore. Put it in your car. I was listening to this um, CD this morning as I was getting ready for church. And I, it just struck me over and over again how every single one of these songs um, is helpful to us in our anger. You know, I, don't tr- I cannot trust myself when I'm angry, but I can trust the Psalms. And like I said earlier, one of the beautiful things about songs is they get stuck in our head. And in our anger, we can begin to sing, My help, my God, where does my comfort from? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. So pick one of those up as you leave, as our gift to you. What are we going to do with our anger? Let me just say this. um, Even with all that I have just said about the power of God to change our anger, our anger is not going to just go away overnight. And just knowing that, um, you know, what the Bible says, that God is the just judge and that he is the one who responds justly. And that on the cross, Jesus saps the poison out of our anger. Even having said all that, our anger is not going to go away overnight, is it? Um, And that's why we need each other. Uh, That's why we need worship. Because weekly, we sing, we hear we're reminded again of what is really true and what is really important. Um, And our anger is like recalibrated. Uh, We're reminded of what we should be angry about and what does not ultimately matter. We need each other because uh, we can't trust ourselves in our anger and we need community because we need others to come alongside us. We need others who love us to come alongside us gently in our anger. Um, not quite a year ago, I started talking to a counselor largely because of the anger that I saw in myself. And in some ways, my, um, 
my, my fear about what my anger might do to me and what my anger might do to my family and kind of just like a growing awareness that uh, a lot of my ministry has been driven by my anger and my frustration. And we talked once and now I'm all better. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> and I'm realizing that so much of my anger is driven by my own fear of insignificance. And I'm angry at the things, I'm angry at the people that I feel like stand in my way. And I'm learning in moments of anger to just stop and pause and wait and open myself up to God and say to God, okay, if I'm feeling insignificance, how can I find my significance right now in Jesus? And to begin to pray, I can either find my significance as a person you know, I can either find my significance as a pastor or as a son of God. Which one of those is going to last? Which one of those can bear the weight that I put on it? And so I just want to finish with the encouragement, not as somebody uh, who has figured it out, but somebody who has an expert in anger because I have been angry for so much of my life. I want to finish with this encouragement to bring your anger to God to pray your anger, to sing in your anger, to bring your anger to God and find that he is justly angry and yet he is compassionate and he is angry because he loves. He has shown his anger in the depth of the sacrifice of his son. And on the cross, Jesus saps the poison from our anger and enables us to know not just anger but love as well. I heard a story about a, uh, <clears throat> a woman, a single woman who adopted a, a little boy and this boy had been um, abused and because of that he was deeply troubled. And she would say that sometimes he would just fly into these fits of rage and he could not be calmed he could not be consoled. And in those moments, this mom would just wrap her son in her arms and hold him as he would rage and whisper in his ear, I love you. You're safe. I'm never going to leave. And she would just wait out the anger. And I want to encourage you to look to Jesus, to bring your anger to him, and find that he is the one who embraces you, not despite your anger, but in it. And he whispers to you, I love you, I've got you, and I'm not going to let you go. Will you pray with me? God, we are angry people. I'm an angry person. We live in an angry world. And God, would you... Um, wrap your arms around us. In your love, would you show us that uh, there are many things that we ought to be angry about. Would you retune our hearts so that we love the things that you love and are motivated to action by the things that break your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.